Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. You know, it used to be that all kinds of companies would sponsor entertainment such as TV and radio shows. And it would seem that those days are back. The result of this where a certain brand teams up with a certain artist or creator, is that in my case, and appropriately so, my greatest supporter and the reason why I can even bring this podcast to you is due to the patronage and support of Aggressor Adventures, who have mastered the art of adventure vacations for more than 38 years. Choose Aggressor and choose your adventure. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. There are studio musicians and there are performing musicians. And the best of them are those musicians who truly are the best of both worlds. Absolute masters in the recording studio and yet able to command their musical performance on stage to the delight and awe of the audience. This is Dave Rosenthal. 28 years as Billy Joel's keyboardist and musical director, he has toured the world and played all of the stages multiple times that the rest of us can only dream about. In this part two of my chat with Dave, we will go there, to the stages of the world where he joins Billy Joel, Cyndi Lauper, Robert Palmer, Enrique Iglesias, Richie Blackmore, Rainbow, and Steve Vai. These are the words of musician and artist Dave Rosenthal. And and I really like when, when a lot of the genres get, you know, melded together. And you know, that's elements of that, that's elements, because it's all good stuff. I'm very proud of those, but they really didn't make any money. There were several points where I had to consciously make the decision, do I want to be a musician and make a living, or do I want to go get a day job so I can play my own music? And to me, the most, most important thing is just, I am a musician, this is what I do, I don't mind playing somebody else's music, you know? I could never write a song like Billy Joel could write a song. And, um, and, and I love his music. It never gets old to me. What do you think of, the, of where music has gone in the last 20 years? You, you've been in the thick yeah, of it been, all been that through, time. Yeah, um, it's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. I don't think that there are very many up-and-coming artists that do what Billy does, not just, not just stylistically, he is that actual live performer thing. And a lot of people come up nowadays uh, using technology to record their ideas and, and very good musicianship and then learn how to perform sort of after the fact and become performers in some cases. It's just all, it's all very different now. It, it's who's to say what's better or what's worse, but I come from a place of, of you know, we're, we're really up there playing. I love the fact that every show that we do with Billy comes out completely different. Even if we play the same songs, it, no two shows come out the same. 
and it's it just it just really it really makes it a lot of fun. I saw progressive rock fade. Everybody got soft. Phil got soft. Even Peter Gabriel took a different turn. And then I saw Rush kind of continue to hold the mantle. It's like whatever Rush was doing, Rush was still. Well, Rush got heavily into synthesizers for a while there, they too. They did, but they still, musically, they never, they didn't soften up too much mm -hmm. and become, and, and Radiohead came along. What else did you see happen in terms of that style of meandering, experimental music, which I would, which I would say, to me, it felt like progressive rock started from classical musicians who kind of were like looking over the fence going, hang on a sec, Mike, what are they doing? hell, I can play that better than that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they're looking over the fence and going, yeah. hang on, let me show you. And they come in and now they're doing, you know, Steve Howe doing seven mm -hmm. fret stretches yeah. with his fingers and they're doing, and they brought this in. I loved that. Yeah. I just thought, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. even even the Moody Blues, you know, sure. where they were more the pop, you know, blending of it. But when you watched Yes do their thing, for for example, then Rush, it all phase. You got Rush, you got Radiohead, maybe Tool. What did you see happen over the last 20 years with that kind of big experimental music, and where is it now? I think the, I think um, e each generation, as it as it evolves, tends to rebel against what came before it. Do you know what I mean? As the progressive thing became really popular, which was more co uh, complex in its in its nature, and and then the rebellion to that was when disco came in, and everything was like very simple, just boom, right here. And then songs, they put pop songs over it, and they became, they, they, you know, there were, there were some good songs in that era, certainly, but, but there was more of a focus on simplicity which was somewhat of a rebellion to that. And then, and then you had all the synths that were in that era. And then the rebellion against all the synths was when guitar became king in the 80s. Keyboards were still there, but they had more of a supportive role. And then there was this really big, polished sound in the 80s, and the rebellion against that was the 90s with the grunge. Some of it happens that way, that, that people just want something completely different, so they go kind of over here as a rebellion from having been there. And, and I really like when, when a lot of the genres get, you know, melded together. And you know, oh, that's elements of that, that's elements, because it's all good stuff. That, to me, makes it really uh, interesting to listen to when they, when they combine. Well, you, and you touched on something, because you just kind of gave a quick, brief history of rock and roll in many ways, and um, <clears throat> I've often said that I was, I was too uh, young for rock and roll the first time, and then I was too old for it the second time. And you say, well, when was the second time? To me, the second time really was grunge. If you, if you listen to Pearl Jam, if you listen to Mike McCready playing a solo, he's just doing Freebird. And if you ask them, look, man, we're just playing rock and roll. Yeah. They, will, they will never call themselves grunge or anything of course, like yeah. that. Yeah. And so I think there's a cyclical thing. I asked Mike Klink uh, when I was speaking with him on the podcast about it, and he felt that things just always do tend to come back around, mm -hmm. and the good stuff. Mm -hmm. So my question is, well, well, when's progressive rock coming back around? Because, man, I miss it, you yeah. know? I miss the big meandering uh, songs, you know, Rick Wakeman, you know, doing his whole uh, King Henry uh, mm -hmm. VIII, uh, yeah. you know, sure, extravaganza. Yeah. Or is it ELP that did uh, Pictures at an Exhibition? Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. I miss that. Mm -hmm. Do you think there, or is it, do you know where that's happening anywhere right now? Well, there is a big uh, prog rock market that's underground. Not, I shouldn't say underground, it's not a fair word. Sort of, uh, it, it, there's, there's like a, it has, still has a cult following. There's a bunch of prog rock bands, and then there's bands like Dream Theater, which which do the prog rock thing, but have the metal guitars uh, with it, and uh, they're 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 totally progressive, and they've 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 done really well. They're very popular, great musicians. 
And there's a lot of stuff like that that's that's sort of underground. And that sort of led to the Happy the Man reunion because people were starting starting to say, you know, whatever, what about this band? Maybe we can bring them back because they were having these prog fests, which were these like multi-day festivals of all progressive rock bands. And they thought that so so what led to Happy the Man reforming was that was that they wanted to have, wouldn't it be amazing if we got Happy the Man to reunite and headline at this prog rock festival? And it was just a crazy idea by these guys, and they they got in touch and and then and they were like, you know, yeah, let, let's do it. And then that's when uh, Kit Watkins didn't want to do it. And they asked me. And then, and then, you know, so we ended up doing a batch of gigs and it worked. And then we started writing some material and eventually we made a record. And that's wow. how that came about. Where do you see it going? And I'm asking you on two fronts. One, as a professional musician, the big picture. And two, for Dave Rosenthal. I'm very fortunate to be with, uh, you know, Billy happens to be one of the greatest songwriters of all time. You know, he hasn't put out any new material in 20-somewhat years, and uh, yet his songs are so iconic. His catalog is so classic and so beloved all over the world. We keep doing these shows that are just getting bigger and bigger. He's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm with him 27 years now, and uh, it's going stronger than ever. We don't keep a rigorous schedule. Now, sadly, because of the pandemic, we're not able to do the shows, but that's a, hopefully a short-term thing. But, you know, we were doing a couple of shows a month, and uh, we're doing this residency at Madison Square Garden, which is really amazing. We're like 73 shows in a row uh, in 73 months, sellouts, and he says he'll keep doing it as long as demand continues. And Nobody in their wildest dreams thought it would go more than a year or two, maybe three if it's a success and we're seven years in. It's just just incredible. And for me, it's really special to be doing all these shows at Madison Square Garden because when I was growing up in New Jersey, that's where I went to shows as a kid. My first concert I ever went to was there. Uh, it was the Edgar Winter Group on the Frank or Frankenstein uh, was, the, was their big hit single at the time. And, uh, and, and it was really funny because I was, I don't know, maybe it was... 13 or 14 at the time, and, and that was my first concert. And later, fast forward many years, I'm in Rainbow, and uh, my keyboard tech was a tech on that tour. And then Rick Derringer was in the band, and then a few years later, when I started, I did, I did Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour, and Rick Derringer ends up in the band. And I'm, I'm getting to work with these people that I saw at my very first concert. But anyway, so it's really, Madison Square Garden is kind of, a, it's a special place to so many people. It's, it's so iconic, but, but, but even more so to me because I grew up going to shows there. I saw Yes there, I saw Led Zeppelin, I saw Pink Floyd, all, all, so many, uh, Queen, and I can go on and on. It's really, it's pretty, pretty amazing to be, I, I've played there now something like 103 times, which is crazy because, you know, any musician would be thrilled to play there once as I was the first time I played there. So it's just, it's just, it's kind of surreal to, to be able to ha have, have played there so many times. Right now, I'll go and I'll play harmonica with Journey once or twice a year. Yeah. And every time, right before getting up on it's that stage. It's a pinch yourself moment. I, it is, I'm saying, okay, this time, there's 27,000 people tonight. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then, but what's interesting is, regardless of the wonderful, blessed opportunity of being able to play with some of our prior heroes, and I'm gonna put this question on you, but I find myself, it's, all, it's almost like even in that one split moment though, and I'm about to play with Journey and there's 27,000 people and Def Leppard opened up for us, but for a moment I'm like, hey, wait a minute, does the sound man have my thing in the right place? I still have a spot where I stop and I just, it's like, you know what, it doesn't matter. I still need to sound the best I can and be the best I can. Mm -hmm. And so I take the child in me that, yeah. is, that I don't forget to let him loose. For a moment the child goes, Oh yeah. And then the adult goes, hey, have you got the right harp in your hand? Is your mic turned on? You know, and I become a professional. 
I think, in that moment. Uh, do you still take the time to be the child? I still, I, I never lose touch with that. I'm so grateful to be able to do this at, at my age and make a living at it. I, there's, you know, I know so many great, great, great musicians who weren't just weren't lucky and didn't didn't get the first break or didn't, you know, whatever. And uh, and has nothing to do with their ability. They're brilliant. It just didn't happen. And then, and this this it's it's a tough thing. So you know, I've, I've I've had some luck. You know, I try to create my own luck as best I can by putting yourself in the right places, and you try to reduce the odds. But things have kind of worked out, and 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 also I kind of I kind of change over the years, and adapted to the fact that wait a minute, I can I can play music. I always wanted to play my own music. I have my own band, and I made made this great record with Happy the Man as well as my, my, my Red Dawn, and and I'm very proud of those. But they really didn't make any money. There were several points where I had to consciously make the decision, do I want to be a musician and make a living, or do I want to go get a day job so I can play my own music? And to me, the most most important thing is just, I am a musician, this is what I do. I don't mind playing somebody else's music, you know? I could never write a song like Billy Joel could write a song. And, um, and, and I love his music, it never gets old to me. Getting to play music that lights up people's faces that ignites a crowd, I, it doesn't matter to me that I, I'm not guy, the guy who wrote it. I really, really don't care. I'm still very fortunate to be uh, part, of, part of something like that. Worst moment on stage? <laughs> my only, the only time I ever get nervous on stage is when my gear doesn't work. And that's, that's, a, that's a tricky thing because I'm totally reliant uh, on it. I'm always very at the forefront of technology. That's when I really, uh, you know, I'm, all, I'm very comfortable. I, it, any mistake that I make, and anybody who says that, that there's no mistakes is lying because everybody makes mistakes. It's how you play your way out of it <laughs> that, that matters, and every, but everybody makes mistakes. I can play my way out of pretty much anything and I can fake something if I temporarily get lost for a split second or whatever, and no, 99% of the people don't know. That happens, you know, it's, it, but, but when the gear doesn't work, that's when it becomes challenging because you have to figure out, what am I gonna, how am I gonna get through this song? I don't, I don't have that synth that just went down. How am I gonna get through this? And that's, that's when it's, it's extra important to be more calm, collected, and cool on stage because as soon as you panic, your, your thoughts become scattered. I'm fortunate that when situations like that happen that I'm, I'm, I'm hyper-focused. I'm playing the song but my brain is going 80 miles an hour, 80 million miles an hour trying to figure out, okay, I have this part coming up in 16 bars and at the end of the song I have to play this. How am I gonna do that? Well, I can play that on the organ, I can play this, I can cover this part that way and I can get through the song like this and I'll survive while I'm, the computer's restarting or whatever technical issue may have happened. Nowadays, I'm very fortunate, I have actually two redundant keyboard systems running at exactly at the same time in real time they're both growing all the time so if if my because everything is computer based now if the computer happens to crash which computers do or if there's a software issue a glitch whatever i just switch the outputs and 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 now now i'm playing the other computer and and nobody knew so and then they restart the computer while i keep playing away and i just kind of keep going yeah there was one time when my whole rig went down and uh, uh, yeah, but because I, I also have a, a, a failsafe for that, because I have uh, a Hammond organ that's going through a Leslie, and that's independent of my whole MIDI system. So if the whole thing blows up, I can play organ. So I played the parts, but they were on organ. It didn't sound like what people were expecting. Which band was but, this? But this is with Billy Joel. Okay. And uh, it didn't sound like what, what people were expecting, but I got through the song, and all the parts were there. There's times like that. But in the old days in Rainbow, for example, my OBXA, I had an Oberheim, 
and it went down at one point. Now, I didn't have a spare. There were no spares in those, in those days. And it had not only that, but there weren't very many people who knew how to fix it. We were on a tour in Europe and I had to send it to London. So I, I went, I think, a week without it, uh, which, which in those days was probably five, six shows. So, you know, I'll make this work on the Moog. I'll play this part on the organ. You, you, you do what you got to do. You make it work. If you're enjoying this podcast, check out part one of my interview with Dave or check out my engaging and multi-part interview with producer Mike Klink. From David's own band, Red Dawn, the album is called Never Say Surrender. And this is the first track, Flying High.
You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. Most memorable, and I know you have thousands, so pick one of your the, one of your top favorite moments on stage playing. It doesn't, whomever it might have been with. Or. Well, one of the nice things about, uh, one of the perks about playing with Billy is that we get a lot of really iconic guest artists who come up and do a song with us. And that's a lot of fun. And there's been so many. Uh, Peter Frampton, uh, I could go on, I, I don't want to leave people out. John Bon Jovi, John Mellencamp, Tony Bennett, Chick Corea, Itzhak Perlman, uh, the show you, I think you were at one of those. Yeah. The list just goes on and on. Steve Miller. And these are people, I, I grew up listening to their records. And to be able to play that, we, uh, when we were playing Shea Stadium, we were closing Shea Stadium, and Paul McCartney came up to join us. We didn't know if he was going to make it. He was coming in from London, and it just worked out last minute. He shows up just in time for the encore. And we had practiced. I saw her standing there in, in, case, in case he made it in time, because we didn't know if he was going to get there. We played that and it was fine. And then afterwards, Billy said to him, you want to do another one? And Paul said, no, no, that's okay. I'm good. Uh, you know, it's your show, but thanks. This is fun. And he walks off to the side of the stage and Billy plays it. Though in those days, Piano Man always ended the show. Basically, the show is over, but Paul was still there. And Billy looks over and, and Billy's a huge Beatles fan. And he goes back and said, Paul, what do, you, you know, what, do you, what do you think? And Paul goes, let's do Let It Be. Now, we didn't practice this. And going back to the spontaneous thing, here we are. And he walks up. So Billy, uh, Paul walks up to Billy's piano and sits down and starts playing the intro to Let It Be. Okay, here we go. First of all, we're all getting chills because we can't believe it. Even Billy was just amazed. Look, it's, it's Paul McCartney playing my piano. We're going to do Let It Be. And, you know, okay, here we are. We never played the song. We've all heard it before. We've all covered it in bands, but we've never played it. And there we are in front of 60,000 people with Paul McCartney, a Beatle at Shea Stadium. And we have to play Let It Be, which was never had never been performed at Shea Stadium because it wasn't written when they played there. So that it was a perfect choice. Uh, and that ended up being the last song ever played at Chase Theater. Did you go to the um, the Billy uh, organ, uh, who, uh, Billy Preston organ sound? Or well, what? actually, for the for the middle thing, I had uh, I, I thought again uh, we, we had the intro. I don't play in the intro because Paul's covering the piano bits, and I'm thinking, okay, I got this big organ moment in the middle of the song. What That's what can right. I use? Okay, I can use this patch, and I'm thinking I'm looking like I'm having a good time, but my miles my mind's going 80 million miles an hour. So I decided, well, Captain Jack, I, in the beginning of that, I had this cathedral sound that I use. I'll, I'll use that for that part. And, and while we're going through the song, I'm working out how that part would go. I'm working out it in my mind because I'm not going to get a chance to, to try it. And we get to that part of the song. I go, I know it's going to go to the four chord and I'm going to say, okay, so here we go. And I got it. <laughs> and, and when it comes, but yeah, that was, that was a real, real magic moment. And it was, it was spontaneity and it was just, it was just incredible to, to, and your guitar yeah. player had to get that guitar solo. Yeah. Which yeah. I actually know that solo because yeah. that was yeah. one of the early yeah. solos I ever learned. Well, he's a big Beatles fan also, so he, so he, he knew it. Yeah. He just launched into it. Yeah. Probably either version he could have picked from. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine, in a situation which could have been a near absolute catastrophe, 
was um, I'd already played with Alice Cooper in the charity concerts, and that was beyond a thrill anyway, mm -hmm. meeting, playing with Tommy Shaw, Stephen Stills, and all that. Two years later, I got a call and said, hey, listen, Les, uh, this year, uh, Alice Cooper's uh, uh, invited Robbie Krieger from The Doors to come up and play, and they're going to play Roadhouse Blues, and, well, they were wondering if you'd come up and play the harmonica part. And that was the first harmonica riff I ever learned in my life, was Roadhouse Blues. And next thing I knew, there I was on stage with Robbie Krieger saying, hey, Les, if you see me come to the middle of the stage, would you mind joining me and we'll do a little solo back and forth? And I'm yeah. just, I'm just like I'm, inside I'm going, sure you hit it out of the park. I, mean, uh, I, I saw your clips with Journey, they're fantastic too. Oh, well, then yeah. I, and I was inside, yeah. I'm just like, oh, this is just stupid. Yeah. Like, sure, Robbie Krieger, I'll play a solo with you. Right. And, and then, we go to rehearse it. The whole band was tuned down a half step for Alice's <laughs> voice, and I didn't yep, have oops, a half step wrong on harmonica. Yeah. I had to drive across town to an old African American black man blues player who happened to have an A flat harmonica. Pick it up from him, beat up ratty old harmonica, whip back to the concert hall. Okay. I get in the concert hall. I'm running down the backstage. They're already live and I hear the opening notes to Roadhouse Blues starting. I run up on the stage and I hit the mic on time for the first harmonica riff. And even Alex, Alice was just like, That's cool. oh, he's here. Like nothing happened. Yeah, and yeah. so you know, you get these moments and I know you've got dozens more. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I just sort of, you know, kind of think back and about where life has led us from 14-year-old wannabes watching sure. Yes and Genesis up there. To, to actually be with the guy actually doing it, you know? And uh, well, I, I just wanted to share another moment that was really cool. Peter, Peter Frampton came up and played with us, and uh, we did Show Me the Way, and he had the talk box, and, and we also did uh, Baby, I Love Your Way. Now, I actually, this is a, a side note, I actually played on a cover of Baby, I Love Your Way that went to number one. Uh, it, was, it was a combination of Baby, I Love Your Way medley into Freebird uh, by a band called Will to Power, and it was uh, number one in, 19, in the 80s. So obviously I knew that song, and I used to cover it in high school, but there's that really famous road solo in it that's like iconic, and of course, now, I thought, you know, Billy will probably want to play that. But just in case he doesn't, I'm going to learn it. So I, I learned that, and I get the sound exactly with the phase-shifted roads and everything. And there we are in soundcheck, and we're doing it. And, uh, and Peter looks over at Billy, and he goes, Dave, you play it. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay. And, uh, and so there's, the, you know, anyway, fast forward to the show that night, and Peter turns around, and he's playing. He's looking at me, and he's smiling. And, and I'm playing this, this, this iconic solo with Peter Frampton right there. And it's just, it, it was just it was these, these, these magical moments. That, that you remember, and there's been so many of them. Like I'm, I'm not doing justice to the to the 25 stories that 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 I'm not even telling right now. Aerosmith, we we had um, uh, Stephen Tollard played with us at at Walk This Way with him at uh, Shea Stadium, but Joe Perry came up and did uh, Walk This Way with us at at the Garden, and we after sound check. I was there that night. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh wow. I was there the night that Joe Perry played with you. Yeah. That's yeah, I, I was there. With, I was there with Peter Cleese, who you know. Yes. Yeah, we were there. We were oh. in the audience that night. Wow. You got me tickets, so I, no, I did. I, I, I remember yeah. that that you were there. I, I just I, didn't realize it was the same show. But I know where you're going. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so uh, at Soundcheck, uh, you know, I was talking to Joe for a little while, and I said, you know, I just, I just got to tell you, man, I, I actually saw you play here with Aerosmith at the Garden in 1977. I was a you know kid in high school, or maybe it was might have been 1976, and I actually and I remember joking about it because we had the last 
seat center from the stage. So we, we were actually the absolute furthest you could possibly be inside the garden and still be inside the garden. It, the seats used to go all the way up to the rafters and we had to like duck a little bit because the concrete was like right here. And in those days there were no video screens. So I, I watched little ants on, on the stage play, you know, but you know what, to this day, I still remember it. And I shared that story with, with, with Joe Perry and he just looked at me and he said, I don't remember anything from the 70s. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, which was a great line. Now, was that not the show that backstage, uh, after the show, he, uh, he he passed out? Yeah, he, he, he did. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, that, uh, I was in that. But he turned out to be okay. They, they took him I, to I remember hospital. watching yeah. him walk off stage. Yeah. I remember turning to Peter Cleach. We didn't saying, know that until after. He doesn't look good. Really? Yeah. Well, really? he didn't look good. The last 30 seconds of being on stage, and then mm -hmm. you just saw him kind of turn and walk off stage, that, that's... That's not right there. Some something's wrong. And yeah. Say he, yeah. I couldn't see now. his face because I was behind him, uh, and uh, you know he played okay, but uh, but he, he uh, yeah. We and we didn't know that that had happened because we just went on with the show. He went off. The, he left the stage and he on, under his own power, and he was he seemed okay. You know, I, we didn't really know, and then heard the story after the sh yeah. show ended. Outside of Billy. What do you see as, as uh, next for you musically? You know, I don't know. There, the answer is I don't know. But what I'm, I've been taking advantage of this time we have during the pandemic to write. And I'm, so I'm writing music. I've actually, I'm on a sort of a creative jag now. But I'm not trying to say to myself, I want this to be this or that or that. I'm just kind of letting it go and see what happens. So maybe there'll be a follow-up interview from this a year from now, and we'll see what, what I have from it. But uh, I, I really don't know. But I'm, I'm feeling creative, and I'm utilizing this downtime as much as possible to be productive. Sure, everybody has down days, and, and it's tough to get through this. But I kind of try to kick myself in the butt and, and figure, you know, what can I do to be productive here? And I, I'm, I'm able to do that. I'm able to write music. I'm also working on designing what will become the next generation of my keyboard rig. I, I don't know when that will get implemented because everything now is totally fine. But whenever that is, I'm already ahead of the curve because I'm learning new technologies and I'm learning new software. And it's a great opportunity to that because it's to do that because it's time consuming. I feel somewhat that this massive amount of time that we have off from life and from the world is a gift. And it's all about what, what, what you do with it. And I'm trying to do the most I can with it. There are silver linings in all of this. You know, and I think about people in healthcare that I know, for example, are, have become very adept now at doing telehealth and discovering that their patient who lives two and a half hours away now doesn't have to drive over a mountain pass in the middle of winter just to come in for a checkup they could have done on telehealth. Mm -hmm. And so it's very beneficial for them to have learned that forced upon them because of COVID-19. And it's silver linings. It's just this constant look for silver linings. Right. Well, I think that's something to apply really to everything uh, in, in, in life. When we talked about meeting the other people in that, you know, I did get a moment and this moment was just for me. This wasn't playing on stage, but I was backstage and I jammed backstage with James Cott for a harmonica player. That's like coming home and it's like, this is, this is who I used to listen to. This is who I used to train myself to put on it. It was a CD, but still put on James Scott CDs and take cassette tapes and try to get those riffs and stuff. That's where I started. So to be backstage and on his 80th birthday, just me and him. Steve Miller was in the audience, actually. Really? I met Steve Miller that night. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I went and played in front of Steve Miller because like, I opened up for James Scott. And Steve was in the audience. And, but before that, just backstage, just James and I. And, and, and I, think, I think he just knew because he said, well, grab, grab, a, grab a harmonica there. Let's play a little bit. You know, we'll play a little together. And he's flipping. And we just passed a riff back and forth. That's awesome. You got to go, you know, that's, 
I'm not someone who collects a lot of autographs, but but moments are pretty. Mm -hmm. To collect a moment is yeah bigger. Do you do you know the Good Rats? The Good Rats. Yeah. No, you, you, oh my God, I gotta turn it on to them. They're in the Long Island Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the most famous band that no, nobody ever heard of. <laughs> they, were, they were legends uh, in the tri-state area. You, I, I have to, I'll have to send you some of their music. So they, they were uh, just, two, they didn't have keyboards, but they, two guitars, they had progressive moments that'll make your head spin. They had vocals, three-part harmony that would just like, you knock your socks off and they did it live. And they used to play in bars back when, when you know, when people would go to, uh, you know, when I, I used to have a fake ID and go into bars when, you know, and you were allowed to before when the drinking age was 17 or 18, whatever it was. I used to go see them play all the time and they were characters. They would joke. They would they would tell dirty jokes. They would they would do all kinds of wacky, silly shit and then play the most mind boggling music so tight that it was just off off the rails. And uh, can I find them online? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good rats. The good rats, yeah. So they have they had this song. Um, their their first album was called Tasty, and then they had uh, the second album is Rats to Riches, and then they had Rhapsody in Blue is one of their albums. That's, no, the second album was Rhapsody. Anyway, where, where do you think you get your humor from? By the way, sorry, is that a good is that is it good or bad? And then I'll no, it's no, it's, it's, it's uh, good. But have you not ever noticed how much musicians love? A good sense of humor. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's 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 innate. I don't know if it's good or I don't know if it's funny or not. I mean, some of my well, jokes are funny. it's not funny, but I'm still oh, right. But you're just curious what to what to curious. avoid. Yeah, exactly. How'd you end <laughs> what up with Yeah, I, I I don't know. Don't I, you find you know, it though how much musicians enjoy yes. humor? Yes. We yeah. I mean, humor is a big part of what we do. I mean, you know, you, when when you go on tour, you're on a tour bus all this time, and you're basically living with people. And then if you do five shows a week, let's say on a busy tour, ten hours a week, you're doing what you're there to do, and all the rest of the time you're waiting to do it and hanging out. So the hang miserable. the hang becomes a big part of it. And if you're miserable, nobody wants to be around you. That's what they always said about the Beatles that they could not believe how funny they were, how they were constantly joking around with each yeah. other, constantly chirping each other and taking a strip off each other. That's they were kids. Let's remember that. But, you know, that's what makes up a good band. You know, right. once you got that, I found that, you know, sometimes when you've got the one guy who's just too serious, yeah. the hang doesn't but see, last. The interesting thing is also that that's about chemistry and music is about chemistry. The chemistry that happens off stage gets carried onto the stage and it becomes part of the music. And when you have camaraderie off the stage and everybody's getting along and you're having a good time, that comes out in the music in a very intangible way. And in a way that if you rehearse till you are blue in the face, you can't replicate that. It, either it's there or it isn't. And that's a big part of, of what makes a great live performance. Oh, that's so true. You think about the ones that just rehearse the shit out of it and have a template and people are, they punch the clock when they come in to play right. the band for whomever, or Rihanna or somebody like that. And then you see temper tantrums and breakdowns mm -hmm. and screaming fits and, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And that's, you know, I watched the Ken Burns Jazz series. Same thing there, talking about different bands where, where it was horrifying to play in so-and-so's band, but a lifelong party to play in the other guy's band. And now you could see that they'd come, they'd come to stage. Right. And, and these guys were the top jazz musicians of the day. And right. they would kill it because right. they were having fun. With, yeah. yeah. And, and they could tear a strip out of each other. And then the ones who were too serious, you know, if you're in Benny Goodman, Goodman's band, you know, God help you. Yeah, because it was serious and hardcore. And, well, and that's a big yeah. part of, of Billy Joel's band, too, is that we, we all get along great. We have a great time. We hang out. That camaraderie comes onto the stage. Yes, everybody's an amazing musician. 
but that's almost like a, a given. Like, yeah, yeah, that better be there. You wouldn't be here in the first place. But knowing that that's there and taking it to another level because there's that camaraderie, it just makes all, with Billy included, I mean, you know, we get on that stage and there is just that, that chemistry that just goes all the way around. It all just, it all just works and it comes out in the music. Of course, you're only saying that because you're being recorded right now. Of course, yeah. Want <laughs> <laughs> to go to dinner? Yeah, absolutely. Like so many people I've had the good fortune of meeting in my life and subsequently gone on to engage in artistic endeavors with, Dave Rosenthal, unassuming, mild-mannered, and humble, is a powerhouse of an artist. I just didn't know it when I got involved with him musically. Yes, of course, I knew he played with Billy Joel, but I never care about what someone has done. I care about what they might be able to do with me. It's not that I'm self-centered, it's just that creating art is fickle. And you can sit in the room with the greatest artists and creators of all time and just not get along with them. When it comes to Dave Rosenthal, let's just say I cannot wait for the opportunity to see him work his magic in the studio or maybe even one day on the other side of the stage. When you look up on stage at mega rock stars like Billy Joel or their band members like Dave Rosenthal, remember that they are simply human beings too, focused and driven human beings, passionate about music. And that's totally and completely inspiring. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure. Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to Wild Harvesting Tips to Urban Disaster Survival. It's all there and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you in the United States or on my YouTube channel. And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids. It's all about getting your kids into the out of doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google for those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage. We'll figure this life out together. Cue that rip and harmonica solo, Keith. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 